Hey everyone, welcome to Through the Cruft, where we're sharing good things on the internet, one find at a time. Today, we have Mike Rohde on the show to talk about visualization, design, and sketchnoting. We hope you enjoy. It is my privilege today to have Mike Rohde. He's a designer, author, teacher, speaker, illustrator, publisher, podcaster, and family man. Mike, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you on. Hey, it's really great to be on, Corey. Thanks for having me. Of course. So we're gonna we're gonna jump right in, right? Like we're gonna we're gonna go hard right off the right off the gun. One of your statements on your website is the power and value of visualization. You make that mm-hmm. phrase, right? The power mm-hmm. and value of visualization. So unpack that for me. Tell me what you mean by why you care about the power and value of visualization. Mm. Well, va- visualization is really important to me because um, I think it cuts through lots of the things that maybe provide confusion. So um, I talk about this. I just talked about this today. When I worked um, in a large company for about, about three years, I did a contract inside a financial services firm. And the one thing I noticed right away was it was very easy to have this illusion of agreement. So in other words, you would both say, oh, we believe in this and we, we like this and this is how we think things should be. And you you could write all day long. But then when you actually... Um, got down to it, there would be confusion. And I found that one way to cut through this illusion of agreement more quickly was by visualizing the ideas. Now, in my context, I'm a designer. Um, I was brought into the company on the contract to help build software as a designer, as a user experience designer. So I was working with developers and product, product owners and product managers and business analysts and so on. So they all had different perspectives, right? So they would come to the table. The developers wanted to do it as fast as possible, and they wanted to use the coolest new technologies. Mm-hmm. And the business analysts wanted to make sure it met the business needs that they were called by the by the you know whoever it was that was calling for it. Uh, the product owner wanted to make sure the product was viable and that it got delivered on time. You know, the project managers as well were worried about time. And I came into it with a perspective that it has to be usable. Yeah. Like we can meet all those things. And if you can't use it, then it's missed the, missed the mark, right? So when all those things line up, you have a really excellent product. Um, and so seeing that there was so many different perspectives coming to the table, we started uh, a practice pretty early on of uh, weekly whiteboarding sessions. So we were really fortunate in the space we were in. We had this giant uh, floor to ceiling uh, whiteboard and I think it was man 20 feet long so oh, it was wow. quite it was quite big uh, there was two tables that were set up next to it with chairs and what we established the a good friend business analyst and I who was he was also into doing this visualization but he could see the perspective of the business analyst and um, and the product so we teamed up and we would queue up whatever the feature was that was up next because we could see what was being planned so we'd have this long list of prioritize tasks and we would uh, bring those to the table. We would plan it. And then Monday mornings we would have team after team come in because the, the group is big enough. We had, I don't know, four or five development teams all do, working on different pieces of the software and they would mm-hmm. come to the table and we would queue up. All right, what's our, what's the feature this team's working on? And we would talk about it. If uh, the software that we were replacing had this uh, feature, we would look at it and say, well, what do we like about the feature? What doesn't work about it? What are some opportunities? Because 
in this particular context, we were moving from old Windows software to a web-based tool, right? Which has got a lot of flexibility. You can run it on all kinds of different machines. So knowing that, what kind of things could we do with it instead of just being bound by what existed? So uh, we would queue it up and we would do these whiteboard sessions. And, you know, I was the primary facilitate, visual facilitator where I would go to the board with typically two markers, like a black and a red or black and a teal or something. And as I listened to people talking about ways to solve the problem, I would be drawing these ideas on the board. And as they would make comments, so I would draw that in black. And as they would make comments about it, or there would be discussion about it, or, you know, things that we wanted to consider, I would use the other marker with red or something, and I would draw arrows and write all the things that were being said. So really, I was capturing this live discussion mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on the board uh, and documenting it. And there were a couple of reasons for that. Number one was what I said, the this illusion of agreement uh, was harder to, it was harder to see that happen because it was all unfolding in front of them on the board and they could see like, oh, well, I don't, I don't think a slider is the right solution at all. I think it should be radio buttons or yeah, whatever yeah. the thing was, right? They could see it unfolding in a way that if you simply talked about this idea, you could still hold a concept in your head and someone else could hold the same concept in their head and still not agree and yeah. never realize it, right? Until one of them built it and the other one disagreed. And now you've got to tear apart software. Not always so great. So that's where I really saw uh, the power of it and the value of it. Because um, if we did this on a whiteboard and we could do as a team, every, uh, number one, everyone would feel uh, part of the process. Number two, we would have solved the problem together and save lots of back and forth and bouncing around. Uh, and number three, uh, if uh, if I became a bottleneck, which was not hard to do because I was one designer with like 50 people, yeah, yeah. Um, we, we did a good job of fleshing out the questions. Sometimes we'd have to do it four or five times to really get to the solution. But after every session, we would take a photo and put it in a shared location. And the idea was if I got booked up with whatever, didn't matter, uh, a developer could go pull that image that they were part of and they could pull it up and build the software. And this happened pretty often where the developer would move ahead. All the notes were bound into it. We had the discussion. They were in the room. They remembered it. And this brought back their memory. And then they would code it up and say, hey, Mike, take a look. What do you think? I have I had a few ideas and I tried these and they seem to work better. And so it gave us lots of flexibility. So that was the value was it probably saved a fair amount of time of rework yeah. by doing this upfront work, which seems really, as a software developer, to sit by a whiteboard and draw stuff just seems super inefficient when you want to be on your key, your cool keyboard and your music jamming and coding. But the problem is, is that, um, in a product like this, where specifically a product like this, there was so much interdependency, um, that you had to consider not only your team, but the other five teams that were working on different parts. And even our planning sessions, you know, did this as well, because, there were so many different moving parts we had to, if somebody needed something, they had to tell us, Hey, we need, we need you to do this thing for us so we can do this thing for these guys. Like there was so much of that, Mm -hmm. that it was really important that we get on the same page. Mm -hmm. So what seems inefficient um, actually is probably much more efficient. And that's where the, the value of it came in for me. Yeah. Have you ever, have you heard of lean startup? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I got introduced to lean startup there's a couple of things that you're, your discussion there you made me think of. So I got introduced to lean startup and 
you know, so everybody starts using the um, business model canvas, right? Mm-hmm. And and they start d- designing these, you know, startup experiences or doing customer discovery with this business model canvas. And the tool was fine. And I was like, you know, interested in it and all that stuff. But the thing that I kept pulling back to, and we actually wrote a paper on it. The thing I kept pulling back to is it's the medium that facilitates the conversation. And like that is a, and then it documents it at the same time, right? So there's a big difference between you and I, you know, we're partners or we're co-founders trying to develop this startup and we're just talking about it, right? We're talking about it. We're talking about it. And they always talk about the napkin, right? We did it on the back of the Mm -hmm. napkin. Mm -hmm. And it's like, my thought was it's the napkin. That's the most important thing. Or it's the canvas. That's the most important thing. And it's not necessarily as visual as you were probably doing Mm -hmm. on your whiteboard because it's mainly text, right? It's mainly text that goes into these boxes. But the idea of there's an, there's an artifact that isn't you and I mm-hmm. that we are mediating around. Like we're fighting over what goes on that. We're fighting about whether and fighting is the wrong word, but like, you know what I mean? Like we're, we're talking about what goes on that, what stays on that, why that's on there. Should it be there? Or should it be over there? And it sounds like you were doing a very, very similar thing where you were developing in essence, the canvas, if you will, right? Like mm-hmm. you were, mm-hmm. you were creating l- l- the live canvas to people to allow people to you know discuss to allow people to say no no that's not what we mean or no that's not what i mean mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so the second thing i thought of was if you've ever gone to a concert right and you have the person off to the side of the stage with the big canvas and um they're painting while the speaker is either speaking or the the music is is happening um and that's you like you were there you know and and you're like flying around <laughs> throwing paint and marker all over the board so uh, no, but that, that makes sense to me. Like, I, I totally understand how that's valuable in a design setting or how it's valuable in a um, group discussion or group communication type of a setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I think you're, you're right in identifying that that canvas was sort of a structured way. It sort of forces you to step through um, the things that you need to think about, right? It's providing, making sure you don't miss anything. So every time you go through the canvas, you have to fill in a square. And if the, if the square is not filled in, it's not done. Yep. Right. So um, in this case, you're right. I was sort of building a live canvas mm-hmm. with the materials that we had. So that's like another level, uh, even more bespoke, right. To the situation. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, making sure to ask questions and, you know, the, the thing I loved the most, um, I really enjoyed being up there drawing, but what I loved even more was when a developer would say, oh, Mike, I have this great idea. And I would hand the marker, you know, hold the marker out and wait for them to come up and they would come up and draw and they got excited about drawing up there. And they would, they would say how, well, you know, my not, my drawing is not as good, good as yours, Mike. And I said, That's okay. Like it was really more about them expressing and thinking. And it, I think they really enjoyed that. And, um, so that was really fun when they would come forward. And the other thing that uh, my friend uh, Ian uh, would often say, he would be sitting on the table and he'd be watching because I'm, you know, I'm pretty intently listening and drawing. I often wasn't looking at the people because I was just listening, right? I didn't need to see anything. I just heard it. It was coming in my ears. So I'm, I'm sitting there drawing. Usually I'm hiding what I'm drawing, uh-huh. right? And I would step aside and Ian would say, how did you know what I was thinking? <laughs> That's freaky, right? So... But it's just because I was really in tune. We really had, you know, there's sort of a, a spirit in the space and for some in some reason, some ways, mm-hmm. where we sort of got all on the same wavelength. And when that happened, um, we really we really created some really interesting software um, out of that. And it was the journey was fun yeah. as well as the result. Yeah, one I know one of your I don't know if it's a theme or what you would call it, but you know you have merchandise 
that's related to what we're going to talk about later with the with sketch note sketch noting and all that stuff but one of them is ideas not art right like in in the Mm -hmm. the driver is ideas not art um can you tell us you know exactly what you're trying to get at with that yeah so i wanted it to be a little bit provocative um but i think it can it 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 can be a little deceiving not intentionally so but um so one of the challenges I faced when I started getting into sketchnoting was I kept running into people when I would try to teach it. They would say, oh, I can't draw. I can't do, I can't sketchnote. Uh, like, well, that's not really, it's not really a good solution. Um, you know, why are you, why are you don't, why do you not feel like you can do this thing? And they'd say, well, I can't because I can't do art. So they're like, well, we're not really doing art. So I kept on running into this and thinking, Okay, what how do what would be a really simplistic way to express my thought around this? And I realized, you know, a lot of people when they go through typically grade school, middle school, right in that age, um, you sort of run into this situation where somebody's typically really good at art, like they're much better. Mm-hmm. And if you're if you're nowhere near as good as them, you just sort of give up and you stop drawing, right? It's really common. And I see this, I've seen this so many times, hundreds of times when I go into these workshops where I teach people that they, and you know, it's a little bit scary because a lot like public speaking, um, it can be um, revealing. So if you're a a powerful uh, CEO or something and you can't draw better, better than your 14 year old daughter, or something, or, you know, your five-year-old kid or something like that can be really embarrassing. So you just don't do it. Right. Or you're always apologizing for it. And so I, what I realized was there's some kind of art baggage that exists just simply because of the way art was taught and sort of the, the nature of, you know, kids being mean to each other in grade school, um, that not everybody thinks art is such a great thing because they don't feel like they can do it. And it suddenly becomes a separator yeah. and it makes them feel worse. Right. So the approach here is that we're, we're, we're dealing in ideas. That's what I always open with is we're dealing in the, in the currency of ideas, not art. We're dealing in boxes and squares and circles and lines, and it doesn't have to be perfect. And we're just communicating concepts to each other yeah. or to ourselves and so once you, it's it's just amazing. Like when I explain what I mean by that, when I teach these workshops, and it, this happens in an hour, um, people who go through the process of drawing the way I teach them, which is really simple, um, seem like they are able to let go of that burden. It's sort of the burden sort of lifts because they. I actually have another way I can communicate. I don't have to be a great artist. All I need are these basic elements. And if I put them together and I think creatively... I can actually do it. And the whole point of this, these one hour workshops is, you know, breaking it down, showing them the elements and then challenging them to do, you know, an exercise so they can actually experience what it feels like. And that's really key as I've learned, uh, accidentally <laughs> that, um, teaching and then having small wins is really valuable oh, yeah. for a, a learner, oh, right? Yeah. So small, little tiny incremental wins, like being able to draw really simple stuff, could re- really feel empowering to someone who can't do it at all. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really the core of the ideas, not art, is um, recognizing that art can have baggage. Um, it, it's really valuable. I think the arts are necessary and important. Um, but for most people, just communicating ideas is much more uh, of a daily activity than you know producing a canvas or something. Yeah. Yeah. So so you've talked about your designer work right you've talked about your teaching um you've authored 
a bunch of books, right? So when we when I introduced you, you had you know these these different areas where you where you operate, mm-hmm. right? So what do you actually do for a living? <laughs> well, my my primary primary day job is as a uh, a designer. Okay, um, a pr- I'm a principal designer. I work for a large uh, multinational international company uh, that does uh, smart buildings. Okay, and I'm moving now in my career from user experience design into a broader space, which is called service design. And the idea behind service design is everything that we experience um, has different components. There might be a physical component, like your computer, let's say, is a physical component. But how did you get the computer? Well, you went to the Apple store, or you went to the store, or you went to Amazon, and you bought it, and it got delivered to you. Well, how did you make the decision to buy it? What led you? Uh, that was the website, and research like there's this whole all these touch points all along the mm-hmm. way from the moment that you think you need a computer to you know actually using it and then what happens when something goes wrong with it and you have to call service that's all part of this whole life cycle so it's sort of moving to that level of design like actually okay. looking at what the process is like looking for places where there's failures and gaps and then finding creative ways to prototype and then produce um Either you skip that step because it just continually fails and it's not necessary, or you find a way to make it smoother or change the steps to make the whole service um, continuously smooth. So, and you know, as we're moving into like this uh, this idea of um, so many different subscriptions, like it's oh, yeah. even more. You know, the service idea is just like everywhere. Yeah. So, so how do you get into that? Like, what's your background? What, what training did you have to become first user experience, but Mm -hmm. then rolling into, I mean, I would say that the latter is a lot of experience in the industry, right? But it's like, if Mm -hmm. if somebody wanted to come out and do user experience design, or somebody wanted to come out and do service design, how would they, how would they do that? Well, I'm actually learning it as well. So um, I've got lots of experience in design in general. And I've been through, like, it's quite the journey if you look back at my career. I started as a print designer. Technically, I started as a college student, as a print student, running presses, so a printer. Okay. Because um, I came out of high school, and I, we our high school happened to be a technical school that had printing as its major. So I learned how to run all kinds of crazy presses and did all kinds of technical things. I really loved it. Uh, went into college doing that and the funny thing was is i was still i said a designer's mindset so when i got into uh, classes with other designers because the technical college where i went to school required us to do cross training so i ended up on in these design classes with designers and like what are you doing in printing mike you should be a designer so then i switched Uh, so i first became a print designer so did that for many years and then i was really fascinated by the web and i just personally just started to explore i started to play with terrible um visual uh software development tools okay. uh, and then realized how bad the code was that they generated and then uh challenged myself to get a copy of bb edit which is a text editor yep. and learn html css well at the time css didn't exist but html from scratch and build things in code and then preview in a browser so i sort of went through that whole process as a huge shift and became web designer um, still maintaining all the print design stuff like logos and icons and mm-hmm. you know understanding that stuff. Uh, then um, I was really fascinated by this user experience, which was starting to rise. So I got a position at a company that did this work and just had the opportunity to be around other people that were more experienced than me at doing yeah. research, at ob- observational research especially, where you would you would build something or you would 
uh, evaluate software or some typically it was software, but it could be hardware. You would watch what they did because if you if you did surveys and asked them questions, they would just tell you what they thought you wanted to hear, right? Yep. So by observing, yep. you really see what people actually do, what they actually get hung up on. That was so fascinating, and so that's where I moved into user experience design. Nice. And then just um, last year, did a big project inside the company where we did uh, service design uh, kind of thinking, design thinking stuff. And now I'm doing some training to really understand the process and how it fits and how we can apply it. So, you know, it's definitely a learning opportunity for me. I'm by no means an expert, um, but the learning for me is fun. I've always been kind of a lifelong learner. So it's just another opportunity, I guess, to reinvent myself professionally. Yeah, nice. Nice. Okay. So tell us, so you have, you have all these things that you do, things that you're passionate about, things that you're interested in. You have your main day job, which is designer, right? Mm-hmm. Let's put that one over on the side and let's say we're <laughs> not going to say that one. But out of all the other things you do, writing books, teaching, speaking, illustrating, you know, publishing, podcasting, what's your favorite of those? Like if, if all of the other ones, and, and I'm, I'm being, you know, dramatic here, if all yeah. the other ones had to go away, which one would you keep? I think teaching right now. I'm really uh, super excited about teaching. Um, two weeks ago, I uh, so let me go back a step. So I had been doing teaching for a couple of years. So teaching teachers in a lot of cases, um, principals would call me in because their teachers bugged them enough to have me come in and teach the teachers how to understand sketchnoting, which okay. I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, yeah. And so I would go in and teach them. And I really found that I enjoyed it. It's kind of funny because not, you know, 2010, I was afraid to go on stage. I was not really the kind of person that wanted to go in front of people. And I, you know, I look back in my life and the thing that's typically works for me is I sort of put myself in a pickle, I say. So someone invited me to do a pachachka talk, which if you don't know what that is, it's sort of like a lightning or like an ignite talk. Uh uh Um, The idea is um, pretty simple. You have 20 slides, they advance without your control and you have to give a talk against them. Right. Okay. So if you if you do it right, you you really uh, practice a lot and you set your slides up so you, they can help you. So I, I said, yes, I'll do it. I was like, oh, great. What did I do? And I did my my Pachachka talk was about sketchnoting, about my story of sketchnoting, how I came into it, because that was really front of mind at the time. And so I did this uh, talk in a little tiny place in Milwaukee, and I was really nervous um, when I did it. But it was, I can still remember it. It was this moment where I'm telling my story and I'd sort of gotten past being all the energy of being afraid. And I looked out and there's this crowd, it's really dark room and there's lights on people's faces and I'm sharing the story. I'm like, wow, this is really cool. I I could do this again. Like it was just this moment like crystallized. And um, so that's what started all this stuff. And I just have continued to do that and try and get better. And um, lately with the pandemic, um, I realized there was an opportunity to really do some experimentation and see like, could I do this more intentionally? Cause I had sort of been doing it like in person, it's one thing, but when you do it online, there's a lot more technical details you mm-hmm. have to sort out. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, when people would ask me to come on and do stuff, I would just accept and try stuff out. Like I'm going to try, um, I'm going to try hanging my, my iPhone over my desk and drawing. Uh, so I started playing with that and then I'm going to buy some lights and do this next one. And, yeah. Then I'm going to get a new webcam and, you know, I would just keep on adding little pieces. I would try to use what I had to do it and then, you know, keep on improving. But I think 
even in spite of the technical stuff, it was just really, it's really energizing. Like when I announced, uh, I don't know, it was a month and a half ago that I would do this lettering course. I'd been thinking about it for a couple of months and sort of plotting it and planning it and thinking, what would I do? And when I got to the point where all the technical stuff, I felt pretty confident that it wouldn't be in the way. That's when I sort of said, yes, let's do it and announced it. And I was just so energized, like writing the script and like, it was hard work, like really preparing it because I want my students to really feel like I've put in the time, I've done the planning, I can answer questions. It's, it's fast enough pace that it's not boring and it's not so, you know, slow that you're falling asleep or you're, if it's not too fast that you're feeling like you're left behind. So there's this sort of attention you're trying to always hold. And I just really so excited to do it. And it was definitely not perfect. There were things that went wrong and things I could improve on. Um, but it's like, I'm excited for the next one, even though I know it's going to be a lot of work. And I'm, if I could do one thing, it would just be teaching. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So, um, let's go there. Let's get into, let's get into sketchnoting. So I learned about sketchnoting at the same time I learned about you, mm-hmm. um, to, in my, in my mind, you are sketchnoting. So if that's not true, dispel that myth. If that is true, confirm that, take us into what sketchnoting is. Gotcha. Well, that's, that's a confirm. Um, so I'll take you back to 2006 where I had somehow gotten into this mode where I felt like I had to take notes in a way that I hated taking notes and I was really good at it. Like that's just a terrible place to be. Um, I had these giant nine by 12 books lined notebooks and I used pencil like a mechanical pencil because of my concern for making mistakes and wanting to fix the mistakes. So I just, I really hated taking notes and I was really good at it. So I sort of always got caught doing it. And, but I said, I can't continue doing it this way. It's unsustainable. What should I do? And as a designer, you know, I'm always faced with constraints. Sometimes I put constraints on myself, as I mentioned, you know, doing the Pachachka talk and forcing myself to do public speaking or announcing this workshop, uh-huh. which yeah. made me do the work, right? So um, this can, for me, that can be good as long as I don't put myself in too much of an un, unfixable situation. <laughs> so, um, so in this case, you know, nobody knew about it. It was just me. And I had a, so it got to, it was the end of 2006. I said, you know, I've got a conference I've signed up for in early 2007. What if I just change something up? I I often call it like the George Costanza thing. You know, the George Costanza episode where he does everything opposite. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly he's got a beautiful girlfriend and a great job and, you know, a new car or whatever. Like it, it sort of turned out like that. So I just said, you know, what if I just do everything the opposite instead of a big book? What if I use a small one? And it turns out that I just bought a moleskin, you know, these nice black moleskin notebook, um, pocket notebook at the store because it was beautiful, but I never used it because it was too beautiful, right? And so I had this thing like, okay, I'm going to use that. That's rule number one. Got to use that book. Number two, I thought, okay, um, no more pencil. I'm going to go right to ink. And I happen to have G2, uh, Pilot G2 pens around at the time. So that's my pen. All right, let's go to the conference. It was weird taking this really, really small kit along because I was used to much more substantial books. And part of the reason why I chose those things were a couple things. So the smaller book meant I couldn't write all the notes that I did before. So that took um, being a court reporter off the table. And then by switching from pencil to pen, it meant that I had to be really considerate about what I put on the page because I couldn't go back and erase it. Right. So now suddenly I'm being very aware of what's happening 
And the interesting thing was, because I was so used to taking notes that old way, suddenly I felt like I got nothing to do. Like, I'm just sitting here listening and analyzing. And what I realized was there was this really uh, cool opportunity to analyze and edit in the moment, sort of real-time analysis and editing. Mm. And then when I would visualize what that meant, then I could draw it on the page. Uh, And I had still had free time. So then, as a designer, I've always loved lettering and typography. So I started doing lettering and images were on the screen that I never noticed before because I was too busy writing stuff. Like, oh, that's a really interesting thing. And I would draw that in there or some idea would pop in my head and I would draw that in. And suddenly at the end of it, I had these much more compact, almost like uh, if you consider like the old notes I took, like, you know, a giant pot of coffee. These are like a really great espresso with a crema, right? Yeah, yeah. Like that's it's really, example. really good, right? Yeah. And so, you know, what I would normally take, you know, eight huge pages was now compressed to maybe four that were had lots of white space and drawings and lettering and stuff. And I could look at it in like 10 minutes and get the gist of the thing. Like, holy cow, what's what just happened here? Mm-hmm. And so I did that and I it was just such a revelation for me um, that I continued to do it. And I just, the name for it just seemed right to be Sketchnotes. And I just started using that term. And posting on Flickr at the time, which was the hot okay. uh, social media. Yeah, yeah. And the interesting dynamic around it, so there are a couple of things happened. Speakers stumbled onto it because I, you know, if I knew them on Flickr, I'd mention them. And they really liked it because they could see like what they presented and how it got received. So that's really good feedback for them. But the other interesting thing was people who were not at the event because it was in Chicago, like about an hour and a half train ride for me from Milwaukee people from like Australia and London and Germany, like were, oh, this is really cool. I get the gist of the thing you attended. This is really helpful to me. Like, but you weren't there. Like, I don't get it. So what I realized was um, it was really valuable as a uh, feedback tool. First of all, it was important for me because I could actually absorb the notes that I was taking. It was helpful for feedback for the speakers, but then it would actually spoke to people who weren't there because it was a good um, compression of the idea now, of course, it had my own opinion. You know, it was for me first mm-hmm. and for them second. But um, that was the moment where I realized, okay, this is bigger. This is bigger than me. And it wasn't much long after that where I had been doing it for a couple of years, practicing it. And I noticed other people were doing it too. They saw the work and mm-hmm. they were doing it. And a lot of times they, I didn't know who they were. Like they must have seen my work or just had the same idea. And so there was sort of this uh, crisis moment. I was like, oh no, this thing that I feel like I sort of came up with other people are doing it. What should I do? Like, should I be chasing them down? And like, ah, it's not my personality. It's not my style. So I just started to make friends with them um, and build a community because I've always been really community minded uh, because of my background and the way I think about things. So just started building this community of friends that also did it. And, you know, next thing you know, um, it's 2009 now. um, And I started noticing there was not really any place you could uh, go to find sketch notes if you wanted to find them. You just sort of had to scour around the internet. You know, social media had started coming together, then Twitter and some other things. So you could go there, but it was it was a pain to find them. So I mm-hmm. thought, well, what if I come up with something like Sketchnote Army? What if there's a place where you can just go? So that, that happened in 2009. And then not long after that, I was invited uh, by Peach Pit to produce a book to teach the concepts. That was 2012. Uh, and did that book. It sold really well, continue, continues to sell well. And um, 
So that was that's really the story of it. And yeah. at the core of it, sketch, sketch notes are really note taking that's uh, focuses a lot more on including visualization in the sketch notes. So you're still writing text. It's not like you're abandoning text at all. Uh, it's much more of a combination of text and imagery together. There's been some people that suggest that the mixing of of imagery and text together makes them both stronger and almost like a mesh, right? They sort of inter- they sort of reinforce each other. So that can be a benefit, which assists with um, retention and memory. And you know, you're doing this analysis and conceptualizing ideas, which mm-hmm. is really valuable. Um, and it's just a mix of writing and typography. I kind of mentioned this in drawing. It's just mm-hmm. this mix of those three in a variety of ways. It can take all different shapes. And I really love that it's really flexible and malleable that everybody could sort of adapt it to the way they feel like it makes sense for them. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that, uh, which is really great. It's makes it very adaptable for lots of people in different situations. And, you know, looking back now, I'm glad that I kept it really flexible that way because so many people could find an adaptation and make it fit their needs. So anyone from a physicist to a school teacher can make use of this tool, which is really great. So for the third chair out there, I'll have, links to the stuff Mike's talked about and I'll also have a link to whatever he thinks is the best like intro video to what an mm. actual sketch note would be. Mm-hmm. Um but one of the questions I have for you and maybe this is what you would teach in your in your workshop so maybe we'll give people an example of you know what they would learn from coming one of your workshops. But it's like my immediate thought goes, can I keep up? Right? Like if I'm doing this in the middle of a talk, I feel mm-hmm. like the speaker or the presenter is going to get ahead of me. Like can I can I keep up? Can you keep up? Can people keep up? I think you can to a degree. And again, it depends on, I always say context really matters. So if you're in a board meeting where critical details are important, um, maybe there's a much more focus on the text and the detail. Maybe Mm -hmm. it makes sense not even to do sketch notes in there. If you're just like, if you're charged with taking the the minutes, Mm -hmm. like maybe it's better that you just type them, right? Because it's serving a different purpose. But I sort of look at sketch noting as um, almost like a slider, so if you think of like pure text on one end of the slider and pure drawing on the other end of the slider, and typically you're sliding that slider somewhere between those two based yeah. on the context. So yeah. if I'm doing a TED Talk, I could slide that sucker all the way over to the visuals a lot more. Maybe it's just one drawing with all kinds of annotations around the drawing, right? That yeah. can be, I've got some freedom. And then you push to the other side, maybe you're, maybe you're in a physics class or maybe you're taking meeting minutes. Maybe that's more text and then it's annotated with imagery that's sort of sprinkled in there. Yeah. Maybe that makes more sense, right? So I, I like that there's sort of this flexibility to adapt to the context and not such a rigidity that you, well, it has to do it this way. And if you, you know, it's not, it doesn't qualify if you don't do it that way. So yeah. it's kind of the way I think about it. Yeah. Okay. So put your, put your teacher hat on and your sketch note hat on. Wear those, wear those both at the same time for me. So yeah. in my classroom, I teach engineering and math. Like primarily most of my classes are engineering and math. Mm-hmm. I don't find that students overtake notes. I find that students just sit there, right? Like most of the students, they're just, they're just sitting there. Some of them are distracted by what they're doing, you know, on their phone or on their computer or whatever it is. Others are trying to write down everything you say. Mm -hmm. Um, And in my mind, I would love to um, encourage them and or require them to do something like sketch note, right? Like something on the, on the scale of it. But I understand that it's going to resonate with certain people and it's not going to resonate with other people. So what is the um, 
what's the risk? Let's put it that way. What's the risk for me as a teacher if I require them to do this for four weeks, three weeks, or whatever it is, just to like practice the skill? And because I, I don't want to do it just once. You know, one and done is in my mind is not it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. So half of the semester, like, I mean, do you, do you see a major problem with me trying to do that? Actually, um, I don't think so, and I think it depends on how you structure it and what the rewards are for doing it or not doing it. Um, I I did a podcast a couple of years ago where I talked to uh, a woman who were, uh, teaches she teaches art at California College of Art, I think it is, and um, what she does is she requires them to do sketch notes, but she doesn't grade them, and they don't have to be perfect, mm-hmm, and she mm-hmm. simply they simply are done or not done. Yeah, yeah. sketch note check, you've qualified. Right. And so um, it takes a little bit of pressure off because there's already, like I said, the, the challenge of feeling like you can't draw. If that's yeah. pretty strong, that can be a resistance. So and I think uh, I like the way you're thinking about it is framing it as sort of an experiment where we're going to try this for four weeks. Um, we'll give you training so you can see what it is. Mm-hmm. And that maybe your maybe what your sketch notes look like are a lot simpler. Right. And yeah. maybe like we've talked about that slider, maybe in your student's case. Maybe they're doing a lot more writing and it's sort of annotating, drawing things in the columns on the, yeah, in the yeah. side, right? So you sort of take the – how do you take the pressure down? Because there's nothing worse than, you know, thinking it's going to do well and there's too much pressure on the student and then they just – they fail at it and they'll never do it again. When if you sort of let them sort of dabble their toe and see the benefit, like, oh, that was kind of cool, that was yeah. fun, you know, then they'll – it sort of, it sort of uh, encourages them to do more of it, I think. Well, and for, for a good portion of them, it's, I don't care what they do. It's better yeah. than what they're currently doing, right? Yeah. Like, because they're currently not doing anything. They're just, yeah. some of them are listening and some of them are just spaced out. So, okay. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Now you could have done all this, right? Like you could have keep kept posting your individual things, developed Sketchnote Army, um, r- written your books, right? Rode that, rode that train, spoke all the, all that stuff. Why did you start? actually doing youtube videos and why did you start Mm. actually doing podcasts well i think deep at the core of it was that realization way back in 2006 like i have real pain this is a real burden to me taking notes is a burden and a pain and i didn't really have a good solution until i did this experiment and i when i when i solved it i thought wow if if this is a problem for me this has got to be a problem for somebody else and i need to share this idea because mm-hmm. there's probably somebody else who's challenged with the same things that I'm challenged with and they don't know how to get out of it. And it's really important that I share this because that might be the difference between them doing it and not doing making it and not making it or who knows who I might unlock by providing these ideas, right? So that's mm-hmm. deep at the core of it is just a sort of love of getting this out to people and the realization that people, I think the other thing that I believe in is people have much more capability to do things than they give themselves credit Mm -hmm, for. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, the idea that you can't draw and so therefore you don't do it at all, it just seems like there's got to be, there's got to be a way to get people moving past that. And so uh, my, you know, the reason why I love community, the reason why I promote other people that do the same thing I do is because I feel like um, the ultimate goal is getting people to realize they have the capability to do visualization, which is drawing or sketch noting or whatever, and it can help them think better. Um, and how they get to it, I really don't care. Like if you want to come and watch my stuff or take my course, that's great. If you want to read my book, if somebody else's book appeals to you more than yeah. mine, awesome. Like 
I love having lots of voices in the space because maybe you don't resonate with me. Maybe you, maybe somebody else is a better person for you to like, they get you or they explain it. I've heard that before. And that's why you have to have so many different voices yeah. explaining that core concept. So that's really what's under underneath it all is probably the realization that people have the capability to do more than they think they can. And I just want to reveal that. And it's really fun when they see it, like when they actually see it, that's like the most fun. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm unpacking your, your, your life, if you will. Right. And when we're not going to get necessarily super personal, cause we're going to stay like the professional side. So you're working as a designer, sketchnoting and the sketchnote army and all that, all this sketchnote stuff comes up and it's, at first, what, just like something you're doing for you, then it turns into a more like community-based hobby, if you will, mm-hmm. right? Then you start writing books and now it becomes sort of a, you know, a small business on on some level. So it's very entrepreneurial in, in the way it's happening. My question for you is what, what people who find themselves in that situation, right? Like what would you recommend that they do? Like how do they, how do you balance all of this? Because it's not like, you know, you also have your family, right? Like how do you, how do you balance doing all these things you've found this really cool thing that's adding value to people's lives you want to keep it moving forward but you got to manage everything else you know what's your recommendation there i don't know it's not easy um especially with uh you know family to make sure that i'm providing time i try to make sure i guess it's sort of making good decisions about what i choose to do mm-hmm. which is not i don't i don't know that i always make those decisions as well as i wish you know, when i look back like oh, i could have done a better job at that or that thing i spent all those hours and um, it didn't turn out like I want, but I guess on the other hand, I always look at every experiment, whether it fails or succeeds as teaching me something. I, mm-hmm. that's what I got from my dad, right? This idea, like, what did we learn? Like, okay, we just broke the thing. Now, what did we learn about that? Right. That's always been, I can hear him echoing in the back of my head. Right. So there's learning even when it's a failure. And I think it's tough. Like, um, I think, um, there's also this idea that I've learned where you can appear to be more places like you'd like someone will say to me, well, you seem like you're <laughs> everywhere. Right. And it's just like, I'm just in the right places at the right and have made good choices. Right. About things. There's lots of things like I, um, severely limit what I do on social media. In fact, mm. um, during the pandemic just recently, I just felt like I would end up on Facebook doom scrolling. Like, what am I doing yeah. here? I don't, I usually don't look at Facebook. Like, I look at it much more as a business. Like I look at all the comments to make sure I need, I'm answering questions, number one. And then, you know, just checking to see how things are doing. But I never even evaluate like posts like, oh, that one didn't get a lot of likes. You know, like that doesn't really matter to me so much. Mm -hmm. So um, I found myself like during the pandemic, like doing things uncharacteristic for me. I'm sure it's got to do with stress, right? So, so recently I just, on my iPad and my phone, I just deleted Facebook because... I really, I don't intend to spend a lot of time there. It's, I can certainly check it in a browser and it just adds that little friction. So, um, I think it's sort of picking what's important, um, and then reevaluating. So I'll, I'll go back and look and, you know, this, this thing that I'm thinking about doing, like, it's not, I don't really love it. Um, there's a, there's a book I just got recently, um, from the guy that did CD baby. I can't think of his name right now. It's escaping me. And, um, the, the title of the book is uh, Hell Yeah or No. So it's like this really okay. extreme, right? Like yeah. uh, either you're going to, you're all in and you're going to go for it or it's, you're not even going to touch it. And I think as I get older, as I have a family, as I have to make choices, like the challenge of like success is 
whatever that means, is what are you going to choose to do with the success? Mm-hmm. Like, where are you going to invest your time? Because, you know, now I get all kinds of requests to do stuff. So I have to be careful about what I accept because I could just be working all the time. Yeah. And then my my family suffers and, you know, I've got to do my job. So the other challenge is could do a day job all day and do stuff all night and spend a little time with the family and then you'll burn yourself out. So mm-hmm. I have to be careful about that too. So it's definitely, I don't know if I've got the magic bullet, but I think it's just being very deliberate about what you choose to do and then reevaluating pretty often to make sure it's still, is that still true? Yeah, is that still true? All right. So, so what, what's the next step, right? And you know, you don't have to, I'm not asking you to give away anything. You don't, you're not going to anyhow, but um, you know, what, what's the next big thing in the sketch noting world? What's the next big mm. thing in the, you know, Mike Rody, you know, doing fun, creative projects world? Hmm. Well, you know, it's some of the same stuff. It's, um, I'm doing a lot less of the doing. So I do occasionally I'll do, uh, stuff around sketchnoting. I'll sketchnote webinars or something. And I think, um, something that's actually relates to the last question is if it's interesting to me, then I'll do it. Like if I can learn something from it or it's an interesting space, like I never thought it was that interesting. And this is really interesting. Like that will attract me. So there's, those are sort of my, my criteria now. Um, and I think uh, what I really like doing is teaching. So I think yeah, I've stumbled yeah. onto this live teaching thing. There's something about um, the, I don't know, improv nature of doing it live that things could and do go wrong. Um, and yet still being able to sort of hold the moment and teach and yep. pace and all that is really fun for me. Like, I don't, I can't describe why that is. For some people, that could be like a complete nightmare. You know, I don't, I don't know why it's interesting to me, but. I sort of look, um, I look at some of the courses, you know, and I, I, I take courses. I, I'm a member of a bunch of different things and I do learning, but I find in myself, like sometimes I have this really uh, strong desire when I buy the course. And then I find, I just don't have the, the stick-to-itiveness to go with it. Like there's no accountability. I think that's the challenge with courses is it's hard to do accountability. Well, yeah, yes. you know, Seth Godin talks about the, the problem of online courses is that same thing. And which is why he, restructured and came up with alt mba which is more of a cohort based lots of you know pressure between the students to make it go and it's project based right so so that's why i look toward the live stuff because there's something about like the commitment to be there live is different um and and it the interesting thing about it is you do the live event and if you record it which i'm trying to get better at you now have an artifact which has probably almost the same value as the live thing. Oh, yeah. you, and the students can watch it again and again, or you can sell it as a thing. So you sort of have the benefit of the course, but it's more focused around the live thing. So that's sort of the place that I'm excited about and trying to decide what what are the content that would be most valuable to well, do in that t- way. Yeah, and you talk about value to the people that want to learn that thing too, right? Because some people want to be at that live event and they learn really well there. And then other mm-hmm. people are like, no, I want the recorded because I can rewind it. You know, right. like every, every five minutes I can rewind. Every five yeah. minutes I can rewind. And um, and I see that all the time, you know, especially as, you know, we're going into more remote type learning, you mm-hmm. know, due to the nature of, of the way things are right now. I have certain students who are like, I need to be sitting in front of you. And then I have other <laughs> students who are like, nope. I'd much rather watch the video, right? Like, yeah. you, I, I want to hear what you have to say, but I don't want to hear it live because I can, I can engage with it differently and better. Yeah. All right. So, so as we, as we move through, right. Um, 
one of the things I want to I, w- I want my guests to to be able to do is share something cool on the internet with us, right? So, mm. in your mind, what's a cool thing that you've found on the internet? You know, in the last year, mm. in the last six months, that you'd want other people to know about. Hmm. Something that I find really interesting. So this is comes back to my teaching and the and the nerdiness of the technology is as a teacher and as someone who likes to do live stuff, the place where I've learned the most are from game streamers. Like my kids watch these gamer streamer guys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's, you, it's it's real easy. Like some of the ones that my son will watch, they like scream in the mic and it just like over the top, like the personality stuff. Right. But if you look past it, some of these really advanced streamers are really, really smart and they technically are really great resources you know, I'm not going to become a game streamer. That's not my thing. But there is a lot that I have learned from them about um, webcams, like quality. Oh, web- yeah. Like I learned like the there's a Logitech nine, uh, C920, which is eight years old. And it's still like the gold standard for most streamers. Right. It's crazy that this old technology still holds up. And there finally are some cameras that are coming along to compete with them. And that some of these guys have like five, six thousand dollar mirrorless full-frame cameras going into like monster PCs with cooling racks and stuff and lights and they have all these you know uh, boards on their desk so they can do transitions and it's like they literally have like a TV broadcast studio in their rooms to do the streaming oh yeah but those are the guys when I looked at a new webcam to upgrade my webcam for this stuff those are the guys I look to first if I, I was considering like my wife's got a a nice Sony camera for the once in a while that I do that. Is it worth getting a cam link for that? Like, and I did all these reviews and these guys know the stuff inside and out and they ex- explain it and they do testing. Like they're really into it and they're super valuable. And it was like just this interesting resource. I would have never, if you would have told me I would be doing research with game, game streamers, I would have never guessed it. And it's really valuable information if that's, you know, so I think what I, I'll, what I'm sort of getting at is you can learn a lot about adjacent spaces mm-hmm. um, if you know how to extract the things that are valuable to you. Like I said, I'm not going to be a game streamer, but there is some really valuable information. You know, like the things that they want, maybe I don't want, but that they revealed to me like, well, this core set of features makes that's the webcam that I want. It was really clear, right? Because they did all that work. So um, don't be afraid to look in adjacent spaces for information to help you because sometimes that can be the best place to go. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll double down on that with you is, is even the style of the way they're doing things, right? Like, especially if you're looking at the ones that are, are popular, there's a portion of the reason they're popular is because of what they're doing, right? It's the game, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's their personality, whatever it is. But then the other portion is because they're, they're telling stories in compelling ways yes. or they're making content in compelling ways. And can, what can you glean out of the way they're telling those stories mm-hmm. or the way they're making that content? Um, yeah, I, I find that really fascinating. And, and mine isn't necessarily gamers. Mine's more with like technology people, like technology mm-hmm. YouTubers and that kind of stuff. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, what are they What are they really trying to do here? Oh, it actually has nothing to do with the headphones. It has everything right. to do with all of these other factors that, that they're talking about um, in that system. So that's awesome. Uh, mine, I'll, 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 I want to do this as well, right? If I'm going to put you <laughs> on it, but I've, I've had a chance. I actually just learned about this uh, this morning, but uh, there is a... There's a writing app online. It's called uh, the most dangerous writing app. I think is what it's called. <laughs> and and the way this app works is you set your your criteria. So mm-hmm. I either say like I want to write a thousand words, or I want to write for ten minutes, or five minutes, or a hundred words, or whatever it is. 
and basically you start writing and if you like slow down the words start to disappear right and if you <laughs> slow down enough or if you stop writing enough the words completely go away and it's not like you can hit control z and get them back like they're gone so if you're 900 words mm. into your thousand word goal and you don't finish all of that goes away completely goes away and i was like wow that is scary and a really really interesting tool because you know a lot of a lot of that is words on paper right like a lot of writing is just get, getting the words down and mm. then writing is revision so you just revise and you revise and revise and revise so it's like i i love the idea of that <laughs> app and it's like man I, I can't imagine trying to trying to do it though setting targets and then trying to up your target and up your target and up your target to to do that kind of stuff so it could be an interesting twist on that one where instead of the words disappearing so let's say that you pick a cadence or whatever your cadence is x x words per minute or something um and if you maintain the cadence between some range it's yeah. the app is free but if you slow down or you speed up like you get sloppy then you got to pay and you you have to pay it right like if you go yeah. slow down and you got to pay money and if so you're always you're trying to maintain a, a speed because at the end you would have to pay your you maybe you don't even have control of it it's you have to to sign up you sign up with paypal or something and it yeah. automatically gets sucked out of your account right yeah yeah it's that's that's even another because i've seen i've seen apps like that where you put your credit card in early and if you don't hit your targets whatever you establish mm. as your targets like whether it's working out you know five times a week or you know drinking a glass of water every day or whatever it is if you don't hit your targets then they they donate you know five bucks a charity or whatever it is yeah. out, of your, out of your account so yeah that's awesome well um mike i appreciate having you on i appreciate you telling us about you know your your journey i appreciate you telling us about sketch noting is there anything else you'd like folks to know as we as we kind of wrap things up here hmm I would say um, if you're thinking about doing sketchnoting, if it's something you're curious about, my big word for you is have grace for yourself, especially in this time, right? In the COVID time where there's so much, there's enough pressure already. You don't need to add more pressure to yourself is to give grace for yourself. Um, when you start it, you know, maybe date that. And when the first, the first one you do, hide it away somewhere. <laughs> and if you continue it, you know, pull it out in six months and see how much pro progress you've made. Um, uh, I think that's really the key to learning is sort of um, I'll, I'll take this back to what I learned in writing a book uh, because a book you can't really pull an all nighter and do a book really like it's too big of a project. If you're doing a, a, a good sized book, the thing I learned about writing a book was I needed to be happy with what I produced today. Like I have to mm -hmm. do my best. I have to sit mm -hmm. down and put in the work and whatever that was some days I would be like, you know, I wish I had done more, but the day's gone. I got to go to sleep now. And then tomorrow mm -hmm. I got to work and then I get after work, I can work on it again. And the thing that I found most um, helpful was just being happy with what I produced and knowing that I would take another shot at it tomorrow. And that was really what made it happen was that every day hitting it and doing more and making progress, pushing the rock farther. Yeah. And then suddenly the next thing you know, it's like, wow, I, the book is done. How'd that happen? Then now you have a new challenge and that is promoting the book, which is sometimes as hard or maybe harder than actually yeah. writing the book, right? So, but that's that's a good mindset to have is just making progress, celebrating the pro progress, learning from it, and then hitting it again tomorrow. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm actually going to put that into practice starting as soon as possible because that, that makes a lot of sense. Sometimes I get down and it's like, oh, I wanted to do X, Y, Z today. And for whatever reason, it didn't happen. It's like, no, just be happy that you got that thing organized or whatever. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. That's good. I, I like that. I like that advice. 
All right, Mike. So if people want to learn more about you, if they want to um, connect with you or anything like that, where would you point them? I would say uh, the, probably the primary place would be roadesign.com, R-O-H-T-E-S-I-G-N.com. That's my my page. It's got a blog on there. I've got about information. You can see what sketch notes are. You can see my books. You can see my sketchbook. And then there's links to all my social media there, which typically if you look around for the handle row design, you'll find me on Twitter, Instagram, other places. So those are, that would be the place to point to. And then from there you can find everything else. Thanks to Mike for coming on the show and thank you for listening. If you want to find out more, you can find us on Twitter at through the cruft or at our website through the If you enjoyed the show, please consider reviewing it and sharing it with your friends. Thanks.